Hello and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bounds. Well, Big Bird, Oscar the Grouch, Elmo, the Cookie Monster, the Muppets. It is unlikely that those names mean nothing to you. The characters of Sesame Street have been the close childhood friends via the TV for millions since they arrived on our screens in 1969. The programme was designed to find a new way to teach young inner-city children, specifically from ethnic minorities. It was conceived through a meeting of minds between TV executives and child education specialists, but lessons were not only about counting in the alphabet. Dreamt up while America's civil rights movement fought for the end of racial discrimination, it had diversity at its core from the outset. Alongside the schooling and the silliness, showing all races living in harmony on Sesame Street was quietly radical. A new documentary tells the origin story of the iconic programme. Street Gang, How We Got to Sesame Street, shows us who is behind the camera and the faces attached to the hands deftly manipulating those brightly coloured puppets. Street Gang reinforces how important Sesame Street's mission was and the flair and fun with which it was delivered. And I'm joined today by the director Marilyn Agrelo, whose film is an uplifting and moving look into a show that entirely reinvented a genre of children's television. Marilyn, welcome to the programme. Welcome to uh, our little shaded corner of Sesame Street. Lovely to have you with us. <laughs> it's lovely to be here. Thank you. <laughs> oh, I feel, well, I've just re-watched the film before our chat to get back into the the warm vibe of your documentary. It's really such a, as, as we said in the introduction, such a warm and moving and sort of quite laser-focused look at the street. Before we get into the cast, the characters, how it was put together. Maybe you can um, tell us personally what role Sesame Street has played in, in your life, Marilyn. Well, of course, I was aware of Sesame Street from childhood. I'm afraid I'm not exactly the three to four-year-old audience they were looking for when they launched, but I was aware of it, as were my older siblings who were watching it even in high school university students were watching it. This was such a trippy thing that came out. No one had ever seen anything like this. And so it's been in my life the whole time. And I have to say, if I had to pick who influenced me the most, it would be Oscar the Grouch. This is a guy who tells it like it is. I had, it was a shocking thing to see as a child and pretty wonderful. Yeah, as you say, this considering these are sort of luminous colored puppets there's a lot of reality in sesame street right and i guess we start with the street itself the set it was decided early production meetings that this place you know had to look like a, a street in harlem where there'd be black people and latin families and all sorts of a you know mixed bunch of different residents right absolutely you know when i was uh, conceiving of this film and talking about it with the other filmmakers involved I wanted to make something that would go beyond just showing clips of classic Sesame Street episodes because you can find those on YouTube. I wanted to tell the story of the people behind it and tell a story that was really about adults for adults. And in particular, I wanted to tell the story of John Stone, who no one knows this guy. I mean, when I've talked to people throughout the course of making this movie, and I've said I'm making a documentary about Sesame Street, invariably people have said, oh yeah, Jim Henson, that's Jim Henson's show. But it's not, it's this wonderful genius named John Stone. And John, by the way, is the one who sat in front of the TV one day and saw a public service announcement about send your kids to the ghetto. 
And that is what inspired him to make Sesame Street look like a street in Harlem. He wanted to reach a very specific audience, black and brown kids in the inner cities who were not getting the same opportunities as white kids in the suburbs. Yeah, and, and it was an amazing thing. So we sort of hinted at this in the introduction, Marilyn. It was no fluke that this thing was really kind of hit kids between the eyes and changed a lot. You know, we, we could say millions of lives for the better, at least in terms of getting kids to learn to spell, learn to count, learn to make sentences, learn to maybe even get on with each other and be able to sort of communicate with adults and stuff. But there were educational psychologists, there were kind of school boards, as well as the more commercial kind of television executive class all brainstorming this show before it went on air right so it was no fluke at all and you, you portray that fascinatingly in the film you've got such great archive in there but tell us about the, the sort of genesis of it perhaps and, and the production company that was set up in order to produce the show so the first thing I want to say is that Sesame Street was really born of the civil rights movement in this country in the 60s you had the Vietnam War, you had the civil rights movement, there was protests, society was in turmoil. And from this, this group of activists who were also TV writers, educators, performers, musicians, animators, banded together to do a very bold act of revolution, really. They wanted to change children's television. Prior to Sesame Street, Largely what was available to kids was um, shows that were aimed at selling products, selling toys, candy, breakfast cereals. These clowns would come on and say to the kids, tell your mom and dad to buy you this. That was the whole purpose of the show. Yeah. <laughs> and they were all set in circus tents or, you know, fairy castles. And Sesame Street bursts onto the scene in 1969. It's set on a street covered in litter, um, fashioned after a brownstone in Harlem. And there are black people, white people, Hispanic people, monsters, Muppets. <laughs> Don't forget those guys. <laughs> <laughs> it was such a breath of fresh air. I mean, everyone was just stunned by this. And by the way, most of the audience had never seen a brownstone or an urban setting like this. It was quite bold and quite daring of them to take this chance. They took so many chances. It was so experimental. This is the story I wanted to tell. Yeah, and it was a political show, as you said, that the kind of kickoff was the civil rights movement. And as you said, the backdrop was America's presence in Vietnam and, and all of that. And so it was a quite boldly political show in its political ambitions for its ability to teach children and to teach non-white children a different sort of tv show but it kind of wore its heart subtly but it nonetheless kind of wore its heart on on its sleeve as a production right oh my god absolutely all of these very important messages about social justice and all of this was coded with exceptional comedy exceptional messages of love i mean the group that was gathered for this were at the top of their field. We had comedy writers on Sesame Street that came from the worlds of uh, late night television comedy for adults. The messages they were, they were writing in these segments for the Muppets were filled with social satire and, you know, political commentary, really. But 
written in a way that you could take that message or you could also just look at Muppets having a good time. It was written on two levels for adults and for kids. And that was the genius of Sesame Street. They also invited and encouraged celebrities to come on. And by two months on the air, their doors were being knocked down by agents that were representing movie stars and the biggest stars in the worlds of uh, music and sports and even politicians. Everyone wanted to be on the show. It was like a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I kind of feel like it was the first a variety of TV shows from The Simpsons to Doctor Who to uh, many, many series of many shows these days that, you know, they're designed for kids and adults to watch together. That's a very tricky thing to pull off in real life. It felt like Sesame Street was probably the first one, but that seamless ability to communicate with the grown-ups in the room and the children sitting cross-legged in front of the television screen is a, t- is a tough thing to pull off. And the writing, as you say, was so sharp. One of the key writers that you interview in the documentary said, well, it was there were two live shows in New York City. One was the Johnny Carson show and one was, one was Sesame Street. They were... They were the two sort of rites of passage for a writer of quality. So it was kind of a a magnet for sharp writing. Is that something that you kind of remember? Could you kind of get with some of the the characters that you interviewed for the documentary, Marilyn? Could you still feel the kind of zing and freshness and verve of the production kind of running through their veins when when you interviewed them? You know, most of the people I interviewed for this documentary are either in their 80s or in some cases in their 90s, Joan Gans Cooney, the woman who conceived of it all, is 92. And when I spoke to them, without exception, you could see in their eyes, they were talking about the best moment of their life working on this show. I think they all understood, even from that time, that they were part of something that was so singular, so special. And it really... What a privilege to be part of that group. You know, you could feel the love they all had for what they were doing. And they knew they were breaking every conceivable boundary. And not everything worked. Some things didn't work. But they were so daring. They were just throwing things against the wall to see what would stick. And pushing the envelope with every move they made. I'm so grateful to them. And every show, I would venture to say that Just about every show for kids now, every quality show has taken something from the influence of Sesame Street. Yeah, you got such good interviews out of some of the the names behind it. Some of them obviously very sadly and dearly departed, such as, you know, Jim Henson and and Will Lee and John Stone, I, I guess. But there's such a warmth comes through just, you know, even in the interviews that you managed to get of them reminiscing about the warmth of what they constantly refer to as the family. John Stone was the exec producer, I guess. Jim Henson, obviously, who's, sort of, who, who's got the, the largest reputation of the team, who obviously was the person that came up with and worked the Muppets. Frank Oz, um, amazing sort of puppeteer and, and voice actor. Joe Raposo, who did all the music for the show. And then there was such a lot of stuff to get on tape each week, right? So these people, basically, the, the show was another member of their family and often the one that got the most attention, right? I was just going to say they were putting everything they had behind this effort to make this show. It was an hour of television that they were producing, that an hour a day. So they had to crank out this show and they were doing this 
in service of this gift they were giving to kids and very often at the expense of their own children. You know, Jim Henson's son, Brian, talks about how his father would leave the house and come back four days later. And he just assumed, well, that's what fathers do. He didn't know. You know, they were, Joe Raposo was in the studio till four in the morning. And I have to say a thing about Joe Raposo. He is worthy of a documentary all by himself. This guy was a genius composer. And the Sesame Street Band, again, I have to say, a band that is playing music for three and four-year-olds, that band was composed of the top session players in New York. Guys that came out of the worlds of jazz and blues and rock, the best musicians were making music for these preschoolers. It's just astounding. Yeah, I suppose that shows the respect that people had for that show and that maybe their their children might have been watching it. You know, that's what mom or dad does in the band. You know, it's kind of an amazing thing. And I guess it adds to that adds to that sense of sense of family. But there were no corners cut on this just because it was a children's TV show. Right. I mean, it was made with as much love and affection as any any major line talk show, any kind of uh, slick production, I suppose, even though the set looked knowingly kind of cheap and a bit down at heel. Everything behind that was of the foremost quality, I guess. In their minds, they were making a variety show, Mm. a show that encompassed, you know, comic sketches, sketch comedy, celebrity guests, you know, little interludes with animation, with the Muppets, of course, world-class puppeteers. They were making a variety show. And I think in their minds, Yes, education of children was, of course, was the purpose, but they were making the highest quality production they could. And the sense of humour, we we talked about the warmth and that sort of family vibe that the show has, but there was a kind of real wit, as we said, some of the some of the writing was razor sharp and very funny. I mean, I (laughs) sat on my sofa and (laughs) tackled away. I mean, you know, I forgot how good some of the gags were that clearly, well, you'd kind of hope that some of them went over the heads of the kids. But I guess that again, that kind of came from the respect that that the writers had, that they were really kind of, I guess they all felt that they were having a real moment on this show, that this was a launch pad for whatever they wanted to do next, but they probably kind of didn't want to do next. It was very good at retaining talent, Sesame Street, wasn't it? It really was. I mean, the cast, the actors that played Maria and Emilio and Gordon, I mean, they were on the show for 45 years. (laughs) So the audience watched them age, you know, and 45 years, that's kind of incredible. And one person, when you talk about witty writing and passion is uh, Chris Cerf, who, oh my God, I had such a fun day with him, interviewing him. Chris was a genius at writing parody songs and he would take music that was in the popular culture and change the lyrics just enough to get away with it and create these amazing parody songs. And, you know, Bruce Stringbean, you know, he took everybody. And in the movie, we show a clip of Letter B which was, I mean, just fantastic that they were doing this. <laughs> with, with apologies to Paul McCartney, right? We've sort of talked about the genesis of the of, of Sesame Street, Marilyn, and how it came from, you know, a, a really appointed, effortful uh, decision to pair entertainment and education and sort of, you know, small P politics with education and, and fun as well. 
The show tackles all sorts. We mentioned Mr. Hooper as one of the key members of the cast. He was the shopkeeper. Now, that actor, Will Lee, died around Christmas time on one of the, in the mid-1980s, I think. And I understand that the cast and crew kind of sat around scratching their heads, wondering how they should approach that when children had been so used to seeing this character rock up and, you know, open his shop every day on that show. And then he was suddenly going to be gone. Tell our listeners how they kind of got over that hurdle and how it sort of added to the the sort of well of feeling and, and the honesty that came with Sesame Street. The death of Mr. Hooper is just one of those things that people remember decades later at watching as a child. It was so deep. When Will Lee died, they were faced with this dilemma. And the easiest solution would have been to just say to the audience, uh, he, Mr. Hooper moved away or he retired or maybe just replace him with another actor and just leave it at that. But they decided to use this moment as a teaching opportunity. And so Norman Stiles, the head writer, wrote this amazingly touching episode in which Big Bird, who frequently was the surrogate for the audience, where Big Bird is told that Mr. Hooper's gone and he doesn't understand what death means. And it's explained to him slowly and gently that he's not coming back. And this is an episode of Sesame Street that they purposely aired it on Thanksgiving because they understood that on Thanksgiving, families would definitely be together because this was going to be an episode that was discussed. And even though Sesame Street was on public television, commercial stations actually promoted this episode in advance. Everybody understood the gravity and the importance of what Sesame Street was doing. That's a fantastic moment in the film and it's a fantastic moment to capture and remind people of because it's just so indicative of what these guys were doing. I wanted to tell a quick story about Will Lee just very quickly. Will Lee had been a very, very respected drama coach. He taught a lot of Broadway actors and he had been blacklisted in the 50s, which means that he was targeted as being a member of a very left-wing communist party, and he was banned from working. So this is so the this McCarthy m- era kind of... Correct. Yeah. So this guy, who's such a respected drama coach, is out of work and just blacklisted. And he was called by the Children's Television Workshop, and they called him and said, we have a role that we'd love for you to play. So I love that they reached out to people who were already kind of rebellious, you know, people that were sort of on the fringe and they included them in the cast of this show, which I love that so much. Yeah, it seems typical of of Sesame Street, right? It seems like an amazing thing where that door opened and and you were sort of greeted by a family. We've talked a little bit about John Stone and we should mention sort of some of the Jim Henson, Frank Oz and some of the other puppeteers for whom you know, it's an amazing skill to be able to do the voices, to be able to do it and help write those scripts and for it all to be to hang together so perfectly. But I was really interested in your documentary, The Puppeteer, who is Big Bird and Oscar the Grouch, sort of was exceptionally reflective in your film. And sort of, I think it's mentioned more than a couple of times by other members of the cast that for him playing these two characters, one, the sort of 
as you say, the proxy for the audience, someone that has sort of a big bird who's a bit like a child learning at the same speed as the children and not knowing all the answers. And then Oscar the Grouch, who, as you say, who's your alter ego, Marilyn, you've already you've already admitted as such, uh, who's obviously this grumpy little bugger in a trash can. But uh, he said, you know, this was like saved me on years of therapy playing these characters. Did you get that sense in making the film that a lot of the puppet's character imbued in the puppeteer, that uh, that guy was right, that uh, they were very close to his, all the things he couldn't say and couldn't do? Absolutely. The puppeteers really imbued these puppets with their own personalities and inner life. Carol Spinney is an amazing, amazing guy. I mean, he really turned Big Bird into this sensitive, childlike figure. And they wanted Big Bird to be this goofy, clumsy being. And he said, no, this is the child. And Carol also played, as you say, Oscar, which was the exact opposite. I had the pleasure and honor to interview Carol Spinney at his home shortly before his death. I think this was the last interview he gave uh, for my film. And it's kind of amazing. His house is like a museum to Big Bird. You see little rugs that are Big Bird's face and all these things. I mean, that really was his life. This character was his life. It's such a strange one as well. It's like being Anthony Daniels inside C-3PO or, or Kenny Baker inside R2-D2. It's like you're one of the most famous film characters in the world, but no one really knows who you are kind of thing. It's a strange thing for an actor who it's all about your face, your body and all the rest of it. And of course, it was all about his body and his technique as a puppeteer and all the rest of it. But it's a it's a it's a funny one that you're the most famous person without a face in the world kind of thing it's 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 a strange thing for an actor to to get over I suppose let's talk about the Muppets slightly the elephant in the room as far as Sesame Street is concerned tell us about Jim Henson's early involvement um in the project he he has a sort of interesting backstory I didn't realize for example that he started off in sort of late night sketch shows with these puppets in the late 1950s um fill out fill our listeners in a little bit on on how Jim Henson and the Muppets became part of uh, Sesame Street So Jim Henson is this super creative guy and he has developed the Muppets and he has this show that plays on late night, mostly watched by college students, very dark, very cutting edge comedy. He also had a very thriving career doing commercials, using Muppets, making these crazy coffee commercials where the Muppets would beat each other up. They were violent and they were kind of shocking and very different to what was on TV in the 50s and in the early 60s. He also was an aspiring filmmaker. Well, not aspiring. He won an Academy Award for a short film that he made. He was very experimental. And this was what he wanted to do. He had zero interest in making children's television. This was not the direction he wanted to go into. It held no interest for him at all. But John Stone had known Jim Henson. They had worked together on several films. And when John explained to him what they were doing, that what they were creating was a revolution, that they were really going to do something that had never been done before and they were going to take every chance imaginable, it was irresistible to Jim Henson. And thankfully for all of us that he brought the Muppets to Sesame Street because that was the magic ingredient, you know, in this stew that they created. 
fact. I think Kermit existed, or at least we see him in your documentary, Marilyn, kind of in black and white and, and maybe popping up up in the odd commercial. By the way, for which the writing is amazingly sharp and they're really funny. And as you say, quite <laughs> weird, genuinely very weird. They're more like little art art films or something than sketch shows. But they were kind of a work in progress. So many very long shadows cast really you know a, a powerful and meaningful shadows cast by some of the people involved in sesame street what is the what is the legacy of it we sort of said during this conversation marilyn that a lot of the shows and the style of shows the breaking of the fourth wall incorporating sort of you might say animation and and real life actors and stuff and puppets and real life actors all these things it seemed to be the first to do so many of those things but what is the televisual what is the cultural maybe what is the political legacy of sesame street i think from the beginning the people behind sesame street set out to create a world that was the world that they saw as how the world should be you know and when they first made that set they wanted to let underserved marginalized children see themselves and see a world that was reflected back that they could recognize. And even today, recently, about a month or two ago, Big Bird did a um, public service announcement talking about the value of vaccinations. And the right wing in this country immediately went on the attack because they want to know why Big Bird has to be, make propaganda and why Sesame Street is sticking its nose into vaccinations. You know, this whole thing has become so politicized. But this is an example of what Sesame Street has always done. They have always put themselves out there to say what they think the world should be. I think now perhaps the show is a little safer than it used to be. Back in the day when is the period portrayed in my film, I mean, it was quite daring in its social commentary. I mean, there's a moment when Jesse Jackson appears on the show with his big afro to lead the kids in a black power chant. Beautiful children will grow up. Right on. It's very benign, isn't it? He's, he's actually really wonderful because he's quite a sort of fire and brimstone kind of guy jesse jackson but he's wonderful with those children it's a really lovely clip uh, in your film all these kids black white blonde they're all chanting i am somebody you know it was fantastic really fantastic and i think that also when people see this film and when people think about sesame street i hope that they realize the power of creativity and the power of art to transform kids is quite something. Yeah, and just finally, Marilyn, I mean, well said, and, and we'll drink to that for sure. I, I, I wonder whether you think that the current TV landscape, both in the United States and internationally, is as benign as the one that existed then, whether a show like Sesame Street would get commissioned, whether a group of very clever and very capable very charming and talented people would get together to do something like this because this is more than a John Stewart late show this is more than James Corden on a, on a late show this is a very different thing which is very squarely aimed at, at children do you think something like this could be made again I do not I really think it was the stars aligned at that moment with the profound you know turmoil in society and uh 
political change was in the air and and you know rebellion was in the air and all of these things gave sesame street the oxygen and now of course it's so ingrained that it continues but i don't think i don't think the government would finance something like this the way they did back then and i don't think there would be an appetite for it because things are so politically uh safe now i think well, Marilyn, thank you so much. I mean, congratulations on a really wonderful deep dive into Sesame Street and all its amazing stories and how it came to pass and all the rest of it. And thanks for also taking us uh, by the hand and leading us merrily through that street. It really comes alive the way you talk about it, but particularly, obviously, your film. That is all we have time for today. Thank you to my guest, Marilyn Agrelo and Street Gang. How we got to Sesame Street is available to watch via digital download from Amazon, Apple, Google and Sky right now. Monocle on Culture was produced by Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and our sound engineer is Steph Jungu. I've been Robert Bound and we'll be back at the same time next week. But for the time being, thanks for tuning in. Thank you.